In our culture, we often use the term falling in love. We talk about falling in love. Now, to some degree, I do like this expression, right? If, if you're married, you've experienced this sensation whereas love sort of forced itself upon you. Like you didn't choose it, it just, it just happened to you. You fell in love. But there are some dangers to this idea of falling in love. Uh, one of them is that it sort of lends credence to this idea that I think is prevalent in our culture that love is not a choice, but it's just something that happens to you, right? Like when we treat love like gravity, gravity just acts upon you when it wants to, whether you like it or not. And so if we think love like a force that acts upon me, then I have an excuse. Well, I used to love her, but I don't anymore. And I can't help that. I fell into love and I've fallen out of love. It acts like love is a feeling that overcomes us rather than something in our control, which leads to the other danger is that it tends to treat love like it's not a choice. Like it's not something you actively have to do and pursue. It's merely something that happens to you. And so all of this is to remind us that love is a choice. You don't fall in and out of love. You choose love. Love is not just a feeling you feel. Now, love is a feeling. Uh, a, a more technical term would be a disposition. It's, it's, a, it's a relationship between you and another party. It is a relationship. It is a feeling, but it's more than that. It's how you treat people. It's how you interact with people. And so it is something that we have control over. You can be commanded to love. You can be commanded to love. And that's exactly what we have in our text today. As Paul transitions from instructing wives and how to submit and fear their husbands, he now focuses on the husbands. There's not one party in a marriage, there's two party in marriages, and they're both sinful, so they both need instructions. And as he turns to husbands, he emphasizes this concept of love. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5? We will read verses 25 through 33 this morning. I would invite you, when you've gotten there, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. Thus saith the Lord, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Last week, we learned that husbands do have a real leadership over their families, over their wives. And this passage begins by teaching us that love is the key to good leadership. Love is the key to a husband's leadership. 
This passage begins and ends with love. Love is sandwiched in this passage. It begins with a commandment to love. It ends with a commandment to love. And love is all the way in the middle. Let's look at that. Look at with me again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? So there's a very explicit command. Here's, here's your key. Love your wife. And then verse 33, he ends by summarizing not just this week's passage, but last week's passage too. He summarizes this entire commandment beginning in verse 22 in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That word respects um, could be translated as fear or submit or obey. So he's basically just saying the same thing he's been saying over the last two weeks. It's just a summary. If you, if you need a quick summary of this long passage, it's this. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect, fear, obey your husbands. It's a summary. But the key that I, we're focusing on today is the husbands, and so I want you to see how Paul is not trying to be um, ambiguous here, right? He's very, very clear. What is the key to being a good husband? Love. Love your wives. Paul is calling men to lead their wives with love, to lead their wives with their wives in view. And by the way, now that we are beginning to round out this picture, doesn't it really soften last week's message? Right? When, uh, from our cultural perspective, when you listen to last week's message about how wives are to submit to their husbands, obey their husbands, it, it can sound really harsh, it can sound really cruel, but now we know what is it that they're obeying to? What is it that they're obeying? They're obeying someone who deeply loves them and is putting their interests and their well-being at the very front of his leadership. They're not submitting to tyrannical bully dictators. They're submitting to love. And since we have learned that love is far more than a feeling or a disposition, though it is those things, that love is an action, we have to ask ourselves this question. If men are to lead their wives with love, what does that look like? If that's an action, how do I put it into action? And I would also add that just like last week, we need more than just the how to love our wives. We need the why. Because I think everyone in this room, whether you're a man or a woman, can attest that in a fallen world, love can be difficult. It can be hard to love. Sometimes people behave in ways wherein they don't deserve love. Love can actually be a difficult thing. And so if husbands are going to do their jobs well, which is to lead with love, then we need two things. We need, to, we need to know what that looks like. We need to know how to love. And we need a little motivation. What's going to encourage me to love my wife even when that's really hard? And the good news is that what Paul does here is he brings the gospel in, he brings Jesus into this passage in such a way that Jesus serves as the answer to both of those things. Jesus becomes both the why and the how. Or another way to think about it, some alliteration to help you remember it, Jesus becomes both the motivation for husbands to love their wives and the model for husbands to love their wives. He is both the motivation and the model. He motivates us to love and he models how to love. So let's see how Jesus and his gospel motivates and models how and why a husband loves. We begin with the motivation. The motivation. How does Christ motivate us to love? Read verses 28 through 32 with me again. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So here's one of the things we learn right from the get-go. Christ is a married man. Not in a literal sense, right? He came to earth and did not find a wife. But in a spiritual sense, he's a married man. Christ has a bride. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ is a husband. And who is he married to? He is married to every single person who has been unified to him through their faith. When a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have what we call a union with Christ. And you know what's another setting when we use the term union? Marriage. You become married. You, you, you have a union with Christ through your faith. And everyone who has been unified to Christ by faith, the Bible calls that his church, his bride. And this is why, by the way, in the, some of the creeds that we read, the one that we just read, refers to the church as a Catholic church. The Catholic church, in our view, contains all of the elect. Everyone who has ever been saved, both in heaven and on earth, belong to the church Catholic. Everyone who has Christ as their head belongs to the church Catholic. Anyone who has union with Christ, who has become part of his body by faith, belongs to the Catholic church. And this is why we also sometimes refer to the church as the Catholic church as universal. That's actually what the word Catholic means. It means universal. We'll call it the universal church. We'll call it the invisible church. And all of these things are getting at very similar ideas. The reason it's universal or Catholic is because it's not confined to any one area or even any one time. It encompasses believers in every age, believers in heaven and believers on earth. So it's universal in that sense. And we oftentimes refer to it as invisible. It's because it spans time and because it spans heaven and earth, you can't point at it and say, there it is. Right? You can't look at Rome and say, there's the church. You can't look at Constantinople and say, there's the church. You can't look at Redeemer and say, there's the church. Because there are people who belong to Christ who are not in that particular organization. So it's invisible in the sense that it can't be gathered together in one place and say, there it is. It's too universal for that. Now, one day it will be. In the resurrection, the invisible church will become the visible church. But until then, it remains invisible. It consists of people who can't physically gather. So when a person believes in Christ, they become part of the Catholic Church, which Paul says is so closely united to Christ that the church becomes part of his body. This is why we call the church the body of Christ on earth. We are the body of Christ. We have been joined, subsumed into his body. And this is why we are able to receive benefits from Christ. Because as Paul says, every person nourishes their own body. So Christ is nourishing himself. And when we join to him, we are now recipients of that nourishment. This is why you can't be saved outside of Christ. Because the nourishment of salvation is only found in Christ. So you must be in Christ to receive that nourishment. And Paul admits that this really is quite a mystery. Right? He says this explicitly in verse 32. This mystery is profound. There is a lot to this that we, we can't possibly fathom even if we wanted to. 
how we become united to Christ by faith and how is it that we are considered one unit made up of all these people who are now literally the body of Christ. We are part of his body. This is, this is a great spiritual mystery. We can't fully comprehend it. But there are things we can know about it and there are applications we can draw from it and that's exactly what Paul does. That's why he says in verse 33, however, let each one of you love your wife. What is he doing? He's saying, listen, this is a mystery that I, I don't understand at all of it. But I know enough to be able to tell you this. It teaches us this. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, obey your husbands. We can't fully understand it, but we can understand some things. We can understand that in, in some way I'm united to Christ so that he is my nourishment. He is my life. He is my salvation. And so what Paul does is he sort of tells us, he, he, he relates to this mystery through marriage. And so he's revealing to us that marriage is a sign, or if you want a more casual word, metaphor. Marriage is a picture, a metaphor. It is a sign of the gospel itself. Marriage is a sign of the gospel. One of the reasons that God created marriage is to constantly proclaim and model the very gospel itself. Because remember, marriage is a temporary institution. It's not eternal. And Jesus is very clear in the resurrection, there will be no marriage. Marriage is a very temporary institution. Why did God give it to us then? What's the point of marriage if it's not eternal and it's not going to be in the resurrection? Why do we have it now? There's more than one answer to that. One of those answers is God thought, this is the best way I can give these people something to tangibly see and understand the gospel. Because that's the application Paul makes from the gospel. Christ has been united to his church and he loves her and he sanctifies her and he nourishes her. And how can you possibly understand that? Because that's your job. <laughs> to become one flesh with a bride and love her and sanctify her. He is using the gospel, or forgive me, he's using marriage as a metaphor for the gospel. And so all of this, this, this beautiful gospel wherein Christ unites in one flesh with a bride to sanctify her and nourish her and save her, sets the stage for why husbands love their wives. Look again with me at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So now we actually, let's get into our motivation and model a little bit. See, husbands are in a unique position where we are naturally husbands, but we are spiritually brides. Right? We are husbands to our wives, but we are nonetheless part of the church. Christ didn't just die for women. Christ laid his life down for me, for you. You are part of the bride of Christ. And so what, the way Paul is motivating our leadership, the way Paul is motivating us to love our wives, is Paul is essentially asking us to, to lead our brides the way Christ has led us. We want to give what we have received. Who are we to receive and yet not give? Paul is trying to teach us, Christ has done so much for you as your covenant head. He has done so much for you as your leader. Now, he has made you a leader of someone else. So do what he did. <laughs> Give the way he gave. He is motivating you by reminding you that Christ is your leader. And you have received not a cruel, selfish, tyrannical dictator. 
You've received a sacrificial lover. Paul wants us to be motivated in our marriages the way Christ has loved us. Christ is our motivation to not withhold from our spouses what we have received from our spiritual husband. And so now that we've sort of discussed to some degree the motivation, we can move from being motivated to love like Christ and then we can now turn to the model. Okay, so Christ has been a loving leader to me and I want to give that. Okay, so I'm, I'm there. I, I want to lead my life in love, with love, but I, I need to know what that looks like. What does that look like? Now, obviously, the Bible is a limited book, so I'm not going to be able to go through every single scenario that a human being encounters in a long marriage and say, do this in this scenario. But what the Bible does want to do is give us very general but still very helpful, applicable principles with Christ as our model to show us how it is that husbands lead with love. So let's move from motivation to model. How do husbands love their wives? And the text gives us four ways. There are four ways that Christ models loving leadership for husbands. The first one is found in verse 25, and it's sacrificial. Love sacrifices. Point number one, love sacrifices. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ showed his love. He demonstrated his love by laying down his life for his bride. And so this means that husbands must lead through sacrifice. Now, obviously, our sacrifice is going to be slightly different than Christ's. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but you do not have the intrinsic righteousness or value to be able to offer an atonement for her sins and for the sins of the rest of the world. So if that's what you were hoping to get out of today's sermon, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You cannot die for your wife's sins. But there are other ways that we can analogically, through analogy, that we can model Christ laying down his life for the church. We can still live lives of sacrifice for our Wives, And I would argue that sacrifice for us takes two different forms, physical and emotional. Emotional may not be the right, the best word. It's hard for me to come up with an all-encompassing word. But there's a physical and a non-physical way that we must sacrifice in order to lead our lives well. And so we begin with the physical, and this is very literal. How do you lay your life down for your wife? Well, that means literally you need to be willing to die for your wife. You need to be willing to end your human existence on behalf of your wife. Our wives should never ever, if you're ever in a dangerous position, it should never be your wife who sacrifices herself for the family. That's your job, husbands. You die, they don't. That's your job. This is not just social custom. This is not, this is a biblical commandment with Christ as the model. The husbands put their bodies in the line of danger. And, and what you're going to find is that almost everything we talk about today is going to give you a reason for how our quote-unquote traditional values arose in the Western world. What we call chivalry is not just social custom. It's Christ-like leadership. Right? So let me give some practical examples. This is why, not because of social custom, but because of Christ, this is why when a husband and wife are laying in bed at night and you hear a scary noise in the garage or at the window or you hear something scary, who gets up to check it out? 
the husband. This is not social custom. That's his job. It is an act of unfaithfulness for a wife to put herself in the position to be harmed. By the way, this would even be this, the scenario, even in a rare situation, where a wife might be uh, physically more, you know, better at self-defense. Let's say a really big, burly UFC fighting woman marries a very small, scrawny man. And she could say, well, I'm actually a better fighter. It's not her job. This is not practicality. This is a duty. If you're small, buy a gun. This is duty. This is why when the boat is sinking, the women get on the life rafts. The men go down with the ship. This is not social custom. This is not chivalry. This is Christ-like leadership. Men die. Women don't. We have been called to sacrificial living. Let me give you, up to this point, uh, the gun comment was not in my notes. That might have triggered some of you, pun intended. Um, but I, I, I did write something in here to maybe intentionally offend you. So far, there's too much agreement in this sermon, so I, I'm going to try to offend you. I think a true application of this is that men alone should go to war. Now, I'm not saying women cannot join the military. I'm not saying that. There are many jobs in the military where women are perfectly suited for, and we need that service. Women can join the military, and I praise God for all of our women who have joined the military. But what I am saying is that women should not be thrown into combat. I think one of the absolute travesties of egalitarianism, which we discussed last week, is the celebration of women in combat. Let me say this. If we have gotten to a point in our culture where our women are fighting for the culture, we've already lost. At that point, let me ask you, what are we actually fighting for? What kind of culture are we fighting to preserve? The reason men go to war is to protect us from ever getting to a place where women have to be sacrificed. So if we sacrifice our women to preserve that culture, we've already lost it. It's sad, by the way, how many egalitarian feminist women think that it's an insult for me to tell them not to go to war. It boggles my mind that there are women complaining that they're not allowed to get blown up. It's not an insult to tell women, you're not allowed to get stabbed. You're not allowed to get beaten. You're not allowed to get shot. You're not allowed to get blown up. That's not your job. Men should get blown up for you. And when we reverse that, according to Paul, what have we done? We have reversed the gospel. The bride did not die for Christ. It was not the church who put her life in danger so that Christ could go free. It is not the church who laid down her life to save Christ. The husband died for the bride. The husband went to war so that we wouldn't have to. The husband died to save us from wrath. It is an opposite gospel for women to die for men. That's not the gospel. Men die for women. Husbands die for, for, for wives. But sacrifice is not always physical. There are many ways that we can sacrifice that are not literally dying or literally being hurt, fighting, being in danger. Sacrifice can be social, it can be emotional. So this means that as we as husbands lead through sacrifice, we have to make decisions with our wives' best interest in mind. 
This is why I continue to say over and over again, I'm sure you're sick of it, that we are not to be selfish, tyrannical dictators. A tyrant does whatever he wants. A tyrant has my pleasures, my ideas, my views in mind, and all of these plebes are just here to help me get what I want. God did not give you a wife to give you everything you want. That's not sacrificial leading. We must be willing to surrender what we want. We must be willing to surrender what we desire if surrendering those things is ultimately in the better interest of our wives. And when we do sacrifice well, let me just tell you, it's going to make our wives enjoy submission. Submission will not be a bad word when we're sacrificing well. How do I know that? I know that because I've never met a genuine Christian who laments having, having to submit to Christ. As a matter of fact, if you lament that, I don't think you're a real Christian. <laughs> I love the fact that I submit to Christ. I glorify in that. That's my gospel. I go out in the world and tell them, bend the knee, obey this Lord, obey him. It's a glory, it's a joy. Why is it so fun for me to submit to Christ? Because he's good. Because he loves me. Because he's always faithful to me. It's not hard to submit to Christ. The more we live like Christ, the more we sacrifice like Christ, our husband, it's not going to be hard for our wives to submit to us. Why do you submit to that husband over there? Because he loves me. Because he, he's always faithful to me. We, when our wives submit to us, they are submitting to us for protection. Protect your wives. Lay your lives down for them. Protect them socially, financially, emotionally, physically. Protect your wives. Sacrifice for your wives. Lay your lives down for your wives like Christ. Love sacrifices. But another thing love does is that love sanctifies. Love sanctifies. Look at verses 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ laid down his life for his church to save her from her sins, which requires this concept of removing her stains, removing her impurities, and making her holy. He has sanctified her, as the text says, through the washing of water with the word. He has baptized her. We've all, this is why we all experience baptism. We are saved through baptism and through the ministry of the word. We have been washed and we have heard the gospel. We have received the gospel. This is, by the way, why we just sang. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. And with his blood he bought her and for her life he died. That's Ephesians 25, 26, and 27 here. This great promise of the gospel, that the church is in Christ's hands and no one else's, it's that the devil, the, all the powers of darkness, cannot stop the church from being sanctified and purified. This is something Christ has already done, in a sense, and it's something he's going to do, in another very real sense. And the gates of Hades cannot overcome this. Christ is a faithful husband in that he sanctifies his bride and he has promised to bring us to the marriage supper of the Lamb in all of our glory and splendor. We are going to, metaphorically speaking, walk down the aisle in Judgment Day in the most beautiful, glowing white dress you've ever seen. 
He is making us beautiful and and filled with glory. Christ is saving and restoring his church. He's purifying, sanctifying his church, and nothing can stop him. So the application for us as husbands then is to lead our wives spiritually. It is to sanctify our wives. It is our job to lead our wives into holiness. This means that you as the husband must take charge of the spirituality in your home. Are your children unruly and disobedient? Certainly the wife is involved in fixing that. The wife is involved in that being a problem, but ultimately at the end of the day, that's the husband's job. Is your marriage falling apart? I'm not saying that it's always only the husband's fault. There's usually fault on both sides, but if the marriage is falling apart, there's one person who has a higher accountability to fix it and make it right, and it's the husband. It is your job to lead your family in holiness and sanctification and purity. Now again, this does not mean that wives don't have a crucial role in their own spiritual development and in the spiritual development of our children. This is not saying that wives are totally absent from this. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was Paul who told Timothy. Remember, what, what, who was responsible for Timothy's amazing faith? His mother and his grandmother. So please do not hear me saying that women get to just tap out and have no role in developing their children and themselves spiritually. Of course they are involved, but the point is, is that ultimate accountability on Judgment Day will be given to the husband, not the wives, not the children. One way we see this is not just in our text here, but I would encourage you, you can mark down Romans chapter 5, where Paul introduces us to the concept of original sin, and how when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought death into the world, and death spread to all men, and we all live in a broken world. And who was it that first sinned? Who was the first person to technically bring sin into the world? Eve. Eve was the first sinner. But who does Paul in Romans 5 say brought death into the world? Through Eve, all men have sinned? No, through Adam. Eve's sin was absolutely his responsibility. So much of his responsibility that he gets the blame for it. He's actually the first sinner. He's the one who ruined us because he's the covenant head. He was the one who was charged to take the spiritual responsibility for his family, and he failed. Your, your family's spiritual condition, your wife's spiritual condition is absolutely your responsibility. To be the leaders of our family means we need to lead them spiritually, which means you get your family to church. That's your job. You get your family to church. Does your family have a poor prayer life? It's your job to fix that. Lead them in prayer. Lead them in going to church. Where do you go to church? That's your job. And you need to pick rightly. All of these things fall under the spiritual leadership. You should be reading the word to your families. You should be teaching the words to your families. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that women, if they have questions, should go home and ask their husbands. Paul believes that you should be the theological leaders of your family. Lead your wives, lead your families in holiness. The key to this, by the way, is to actually model it. You can do as much Bible reading and, and read as many theological books as you want, but if you yourself don't walk in holiness, your family will not follow in holiness. The most important thing a husband can do, you don't need to go to seminary. Be holy. Be like Christ. And that will have huge repercussions for the rest of your family. And why do we do this? Because love sanctifies sanctify your wife. But love also nourishes. Love nourishes. 
Look with me at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Christ nourishes the church. What does it mean to nourish? It means to provide sustenance and to keep healthy. So certainly there's, there's probably an allusion here to the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we are sacramentally feasting on Christ, receiving him as our bread, receiving him as our nourishment. The, the Lord's Supper is our reminder that we must be constantly nourished by Christ, that he is in heaven where he is constantly interceding on our behalf. Right? Christ just didn't, didn't just die and say, okay, it's all taken care of. The text says he ascended to heaven to forever intercede on our behalf. We don't just receive a one-time deposit from Christ. We are constantly feeding and constantly by faith receiving the benefits of Christ. This is why Christ is able to bring us to full maturity in the faith. Why he's able to persevere us in the faith and many other needed blessings. Because he is constantly feeding us, constantly tending to our wounds. He's nourishing us. And so the application for men is to nourish their wives. This means emotionally, you need to nourish them, be their rock, support them, help them. A husband should never be the reason that a wife loses confidence in herself. A husband should never be the reason that a wife falls into pits of despair. You need to be an emotional rock for your wife. Support her and help her and defend her. Be on her team. But this also means that you need to nourish them physically. This is why in chivalry, quote-unquote traditional values, we sometimes refer to men as those who bring home the bacon. Men need to provide. Women do not just submit to protection. They are submitting to provision, to nourishment. Now, please don't hear me saying the application of this is that women cannot have jobs. Women can have jobs. Women can make money. Proverbs 31, the classic Proverbs 31 woman, she sold stuff in the marketplace that she made and she made money. Women are allowed to make money and they're allowed to have jobs. But what it means is that for for women, it's an option. You can be a homemaker or you can be a homemaker and have a job. For men, it's not an option for you. You must provide. It's your job. We would say in this church, and people are going to say, this is patriarchy, that's cultural custom, that's yada, yada, yada. With Christ as our model, we can confidently say stay-at-home dads is a bad way to run your home. Now, we're obviously not talking about, you know, people always want to bring exceptions. What happens if you're handicapped? Or what happens if he's terminally ill? Or There's always these exceptions we can come. But the general model is that men need to go out and get provisions and bring them back to their wives. Men nourish their wives. They are the providers just as we as the church do not provide for Christ. Christ does not come to us and ask for anything. He gives and provides and nourishes and so the model then is husbands need to give and provide and nourish their wives. Husbands need to protect their wives. They need to provide for the wives. Put a roof over your wife's head. Put food in your wife's belly. Put medicine in your sick wife's body. Bring her to the hospital. It is your job to nourish her, to take care of her. But verse 29 doesn't just say nourish. It says one other thing, very important, verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Our last point, point number four, love cherishes. 
Love sacrifices, love sanctifies, love nourishes, and love cherishes. The picture of cherishing a wife whom Christ has sanctified and presented in splendor, this should all recall to you your wedding day. I asked the husbands, do you remember how you felt when you saw your wife coming towards you in all her glory and all her splendor? Do you remember the, the, the righteous pride that you felt when you saw her light up the chapel or light up the room or wherever you were? That's how Christ feels about his bride analogically. He cherishes her glory and her splendor and he never ceases to cherish us. Uh, again, to, all of this is speaking metaphorically, so, so please don't take this too far. But metaphorically speaking, Christ never leaves the honeymoon phase. He never leaves the honeymoon phase. He never grows tired of us. He never forsakes us. He never ceases to enjoy us. In the gospel, we experience the eternal love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So husbands, enjoy your wives. Do not allow time to harden you to your first love. Your wife is your glory. She is a blessing. She is a gift. She is not your old lady. She is not your ball and chain. Christ does not think of his bride in those terms. Christ does not grow sick and tired of his bride. So delight in your wife. Renew your love for your wives. Oftentimes what this means is it's very simple. Just continue to date her. Don't stop pursuing her. We constantly receive Christ's benefits. We constantly receive his, his, his cherishing. So take your wife on dates. Buy her flowers. Celebrate her milestones. Celebrate her achievements. Show her love and show her care. Make her feel not like you are obligated to her, but that you cherish her. Now, I do not enjoy sort of ending on a serious note, but I, I cannot miss this opportunity. We must say this. Physically assaulting our wives is the exact opposite of every virtue that we've covered up to this point. Physical abuse is the opposite of sacrifice, the opposite of nourishment, the opposite of cherishing, the opposite of sanctifying. Husbands are never to lay a hand on their wives. Now, I hope I'm preaching to the choir here. And I assume that I am. I, I, I certainly have no evidence to believe that there is any husband in this room who is hurting and physically abusing their wives at home. But nevertheless, I still feel like I need to say this because unfortunately in the fallen world we live in, it is oftentimes the people we least expect who end up being monsters at home. So let me just say it very clearly. Husbands, you may never ever hit your wife. You may not lay a hand on her. If this is happening to any woman in this church, you need to find a safe way to communicate that to me. You need to tell us. And if you are a husband doing that in this church, you need to repent. And you need to admit that. You need to confess that so that we can find protection for your wife and the help that you need. And you might say, well, that's going to ruin me. All the therapy, all the legal, that's going to ruin me. Let me promise you, there is nothing on this earth that will be 
worse for you than meeting God in judgment day having hidden this sin your entire life. I promise you. You must repent and you must tell us, not so we can hate you and judge you and kick you out, but so that we can help. Husbands, love your wives. Christ is your motivation to do so. Christ has loved you, so let the love that you have received from him stir your heart to lead your bride with love. Let Christ and his gospel also be your model. In the gospel, Christ laid down his life for his church, sanctified his church, nourishes his church, and cherishes his church. He died for the sins of all of his people, and he is making them, through their faith, through their one flesh union with him, completely new. He constantly nourishes, cherishes, and sanctifies his people every day until the day of resurrection. And so we can summarize all of this into something really easy. If you're a man like me, you need easy. You need simple. Here it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches men how to love and lead their wives. I actually have this on the screen for you. This is the message. Implant this in your mind. Implant this in your heart. The gospel of Jesus Christ teaches men how to love and lead their wives. In short, be Christ to your wife. Love your bride the way Christ loves you. 